0: Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us for a conversation with Michael Lerner and Dean Radin.
1: Dean Radin, we are delighted to have this conversation with you. You are the author of two books that have influenced me. One is called The Conscious Universe, which you published in 1997. And last year, you published Entangled Minds, Extrasensory Experiences in a Quantum Reality. Tell me, what was the basic thesis of your original book, The Conscious Universe, and why did you decide you needed or wanted to write a second book, Entangled Minds?
2: The first book, uh, I actually had written most of the book and had it in manuscript form for about 10 years and no one seemed to be interested in publishing it. Uh, I wrote it largely when I was at uh, Princeton in the mid-1980s. And I wrote it then because, uh, as is still true today, uh, most of our scientific colleagues are simply unaware of the fact that there's a large literature supporting the, the reality of some psychic phenomena. And I always found this to be frustrating because... Uh, I, I, as a scientist, I certainly don't pretend that I understand what's going on in other disciplines other than a little bit that I see in the news. And so it always felt strange to me that my other colleagues felt that they knew a lot about my discipline, and I knew they didn't know. So the reason why I wrote the manuscript was to provide a, a survey for scientists primarily uh, that uh, would educate them.
1: And what is new uh, about Entangled Minds? Did it go beyond the conscious universe in terms of its subject matter?
2: Entangled Minds is partially an update from uh, conscious universe. It's ten years afterwards, and there's been quite a bit of additional research done, uh, most of it being pushed by uh, exploding interest in alternative medicine. Because of alternative medicine, uh, interest in... Uh, possibilities of non-local connections between people has become not quite respectable but pretty darn close. And in addition, there's been funding uh, from places like the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine that has allowed people who have been interested in these things to actually start doing experiments. So I I brought the literature up to date. I used the most recent techniques in meta-analysis to analyze the data. And I also spent uh, much more time on the, the issue of how do we begin to understand what these things mean, which I only touched upon in the conscious universe.
1: Dean, you are laboratory director at the Institute of Noetic Sciences in Petaluma, California. You have worked at at and Bell Laboratories, GTE Laboratories on Advanced Telecommunication Systems. You've conducted research on psychic phenomena at Princeton, the U- University of Edinburgh, University of Nevada and in three Silicon Valley think tanks. Uh, and yet you came to this interest in parapsychology as a child, as I understand.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've often been asked what sparked my interest, and the answer is that I don't remember. Uh, I can't remember a time when something happened which made me interested in this area. Uh, as far back as I remember, then I think about it for a while or remember something even earlier. So it goes back into my uh, very tiny youth, maybe even my infancy. Um, and I have a couple of memories, but I can't tell uh, whether they're true or not because it would, it would have required that it were memories of myself uh, somewhere around 9 to 12 months old. And I'm not sure I trust those memories. Can you describe one of those memories to me? Well, the memory that is the clearest is, uh, it's it's clear and was very surprising when this memory came to mind, so I give it a little bit more credence because typically when I am surprised by something, it seems real. Uh, it seems less like a fantasy, it's not something I generated. And the memory was that um, uh, my father is holding me and sort of rocking me and walking around. I have a memory of about being nine months old, and what I'm feeling at, at that point as a nine-month-old is extreme pain, uh, but, but not physical pain, but more like mental pain, emotional pain. And it's partially pain from my father, but it, it, it broadens out. It broadens out to many other people of around my father's age who were still struggling with post-traumatic stress from the Second World War. And I somehow felt this, and I remember thinking, as a, if a nine-month-old can think, uh, this is too painful, I need to shut this down. And I remember the feeling of what it is like to make a decision or to be forced to make a decision of closing out your awareness of the external world. And in this case, it was more like non-local, the non-local world. And I shut it down, and then I felt comfortable again. And so I have great sympathy for people, for adults that I meet now, who say similar stories that they knew as children, that they were extremely sensitive to the interconnected nature of the world and you simply get rid of it after a while because if you're sensitive to it, it's too painful.
1: Do you have any personal sense that this sensitivity uh, came with you from some experience or some reality before your birth, or do you simply assume that you were simply born a sensitive person? person and that really is as far as your belief structure about this goes.
2: I'm not quite sure whether I believe in reincarnation or not. Uh, All I can say is that um, in coming into this world, I I came in with something. Um, But I think what I came in with is not all that different than what every other child comes in with. The, The difference is how you deal with it and whether you retain some aspect of it. Now, clearly, there are different genetic inheritances and temperaments and so on, so some people will remain more sensitive forever. Um, but I, I think that most children, probably up to about the age of four, when they start to become more social and more and use the language more, uh, that they're all, they all feel it in some way, one way or the other. The difference in my case may have been sparked partially by being born on February 29th, among other things, it, uh, it made my birthday different. I'm currently 13. <laughs> and there was something peculiar about that, where, where people would have a sh- kind of a, a peculiar shock reaction to, well, what do, you, what do you mean? How can that be? And what do you mean you don't have a birthday this year? And those questions I've, I've been thinking about for a long time. And in some respects, I think it, is, it has given me permission to remain young. Like in, internally, you know, if you go up to somebody and you ask them, uh, "How old are you?" and just give me a flash answer, when people do that to me and I'm not ready for it, I almost always say 17, which says to me that somehow internally I think of myself as a teenager. And yes. it, you know that's So I, I try to to bring the child's mind to to what I do, to, to everything actually. Speaking of
1: the child's mind, uh, Larry Dorsey, uh the physician who is uh, a key resource in the field of mind-body health, uh, says on the cover of your book, quote, from the Einstein of consciousness research comes a work that could change forever how we view the nature of human consciousness and our origins and destiny. And likewise, Deepak Chopra says, Dean Radin brings parapsychology into mainstream science. The revolution has begun. I have... uh, for years, found your work deeply intriguing and have continued to come back to it because it seems to me there are really only two possibilities. One is that uh, you are wrong in summarizing the literature that you have so carefully reviewed, and the uh, debunkers of parapsychology are right. Uh, You quote uh, in your book the uh, National Science Foundation and its uh, concerned with, quote, the widespread and growing, unquote, problem of belief in pseudoscience. And you contrast this position of uh, professional science uh, with uh, the large amount of poll data that indicates that uh, actually an uh, NSF-sponsored survey, in fact, found that 60% of adult Americans... Uh, Agree with uh, the statement that some people possess psychic powers or ESP. So, in effect, you make the case that while mainstream science um, tends strongly to disbelieve in parapsychology, uh, that um, that the common experience of most Americans is that there is something to this; that there is something to uh, intuitions that go uh, beyond the ordinary. Have I summarized this accurately?
2: Yes. Yeah. That. What What is missing from that that piece in the book is uh, the difference between mainstream science as a public position and what scientists privately will admit to, because the surveys include scientists and they include um, college professors, and it is true across the board. Every level of education uh, throughout all of the sciences, the overall level of belief in these phenomena is roughly 60%. And the belief is driven in almost all cases not by knowledge of the literature, but by personal experience. So then you can say, well, if 60% of scientists believe this as well, then how can there be this mainstream position? And the answer is that it, science, like everything else, is a social institution. And what people say publicly is oftentimes different than what they actually believe privately.
1: Let's take a concrete, specific example that you uh, begin the book with, which is Premonitions of September 11, 2001. And you describe a physician, Betsy McGregor and her husband Charles, who are both uh, very dear personal friends of mine, mm-hmm. who are uh, on a plane flying to their home on an island in Puget Sound near Seattle. And, uh, Dean, if you could turn to page 26 in your book Mm -hmm. and just read uh, whatever segments you choose to read out of the quote from Betsy McGregor's um, uh,
2: experience of uh, what happened to her on that flight. Okay. This was, uh, she had this experience on September 10th, uh, right after. visiting friends in New York City, and they're in the airplane now going back home. She says uh, she was trying to go to sleep, and she was not able to go to sleep, so she writes now, in the beginning it was almost imperceptible, a strange feeling that started to come over me. It began with an awareness of how absolutely still my body was. I wondered vaguely why it was so perfectly motionless and felt a growing urge to move it but when I sent out the intention to move, to my surprise, my limbs did not respond. I wondered if I was asleep and having a bizarre dream in which I seemed to be awake but wasn't. The more I tried to move, however, the more I detected a kind of resistance, something hard and unyielding surrounding my body, mobilizing it. Yes, I felt it clearly now. I was completely encased and held fast in concrete. The feeling of being imprisoned in concrete intensified, with it now was a sense of dread, I could not turn my head or move my arms or legs or expand my lungs with a deep breath of air. I was hopelessly trapped and on the verge of claustrophobic terror. And then the pain began, faint at first. It rapidly grew stronger until it filled my whole body. For the concrete was moving from all sides. It was pressing in on me tighter and tighter, squeezing me with unbearable force. My body was about to be crushed. A voice in me screamed out, No, not possible. How can this be? For a split second, my mind spun around wildly, refusing to believe, looking for a way out. But it was absolutely perfectly clear. There was no escape. There was nothing to hold on to, nowhere to run to. and another instant, my life would be over. I saw that. I saw death before me. What was that all about? I had no idea how much time had passed. It could have been minutes or it could have been hours. I lay there for a long while, completely mystified, It was a long trip from the Seattle airport to the ferry and across Puget Sound to the island where Charles and I live. We were totally exhausted when, a little before 6 a.m. Pacific time, we finally arrived home. As the pale light of dawn was spreading across the eastern sky, we headed upstairs and tumbled gratefully into bed. 3,000 miles away, the north tower of the World Trade Center was bursting into flames. Shortly thereafter, a second plane roared into the south tower. As Charles and I slept... Stunned New Yorkers, many dear friends of ours among them, gaped in horror and disbelief as first one tower and then the other crumbled into dust. Thousands of lives ended that morning in the crush of concrete.
1: Now, that experience of Betsy McGregor, a very thoughtful and grounded physician uh, who's made a great contribution to the field of mind body health, uh, you describe as a similar experience uh, uh, reported uh few weeks before by a woman named Marie, Mm -hmm. and that this story is from a compilation of 14,000 cases of spontaneous psi experiences collected by the Rhine Research Center over many years,
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and uh, you then go on to describe many similar forebodings of 9-11. What do you regard as the strongest evidence of premonitions of 9-11?
2: Partly, it's the, uh, the number of stories like this. I mean, there are simply many, many of them. Almost everyone I've spoken to about this either has had an experience or knows someone who has. And the range of experiences is very broad. I mean, occasionally you'll get something like a vision like this. Uh, more often, it's uh, bad feelings of one type or another. Uh, for example, uh, my mother uh, will oftentimes check her blood pressure every day just as a matter of habit. Uh, and this particular morning she woke up and knew there was something wasn't right with her blood pressure, so she checked it and it was very, very high, so high that she was preparing to call a doctor's office uh, to, to make an appointment because it was too high uh, and turned on the news and there was 9/11 unfolding. So I've had a chance to look at her records. She has records. I think the reason I became a scientist is because I've inherited her need to keep records of stuff. So I looked at her her records going back for many years on blood pressure, and this was the highest one in many, many years. So this is an example of how it expressed in her, but it expresses in many different ways in many people.
1: You had a conference at the Institute of Noetic Sciences in 2003, and you asked 465 people about their education, their health, uh, bodily sensitivities, mental practices, and unusual experiences. And you found strong differences between men and women. Uh, uh, and you found, uh, fascinating to me, that left handed and ambidextrous people were significantly more likely to believe in exceptional experiences than right handed people, mm-hmm. and that telepaths were much more sensitive to a wide range of body and mind sensitivities.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: From this, we were able to form a profile of a person very likely to report psychic experiences. A left handed female who is 30 something or younger physically highly sensitive, suffers from chronic anxiety, is somewhat introverted, makes decisions based more on feelings than logic, practices one or more of the creative arts, engages in some form of mental discipline like meditation, is open to unconventional claims, and is interested more in possibilities than facts. So um, does that uh, profile fit with the data on... uh, uh, People who uh, are accurate as uh, uh, as telepathic uh, reporters, or is that profile different from the uh, the profile that emerges of people more generally who are accurate uh, telepathic reporters?
2: Well, if if by accurate telepathic reporters you mean people who have been tested in experiments, so that yes, we have that's what okay. I mean. So in experiments, there are only a few of these um, pieces of the profile that have been tested. Uh, We know that uh, people who rely more on feelings and logic uh, do better in in experiments, not just precognition or telepathy, but the whole range of psi experiments. We know that people who are engaged in the creative arts, uh, ranging from um, music to drama to um, um, fine arts, they do better, and we know that people who engage in some form of meditation, they also do better. So, uh, it, the, we think then that the reason why such people give a good profile of someone likely to be more um, open to psi experience is verified by laboratory experiments that they're not simply making it up, but their experience is reflected as reflecting their actual ability to perform in laboratory studies. So this profile of the uh, left-handed female uh, and all the rest. um, If you were to simply survey, if you had a large group of people you can select from and you wanted to optimize the results in your experiments, it would be good to follow this kind of prescription.
1: And you have a very interesting concept. You refer to latent inhibition, and essentially you say that latent inhibition uh, serves an important function in our brains; it allows us to perform multiple tasks and so on. And healthy people tend to have high latent inhibition. It sounds paradoxical, but the more our sens- sensory awareness is suppressed by what the brain considers irrelevant, the more we gain. We remain stable and focused.
3: Mm-hmm. If
1: latent inhibition becomes weak, it can lead to serious problems, and you describe schizophrenics and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the tagline. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, right. I, uh, you, you describe a, a line about uh, about uh, John Nash, the Nobel right. laureate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he saw the world in a way no one could have imagined,
3: right. and he
1: obviously had a, a problem with schizophrenia.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but you say the tagline is also a good description for creative people in general, so perhaps they too exhibit low latent inhibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you go on to describe the connection between uh, this finding, that is to say that people with low latent inhibition are more aware of these uh, extrasensory signals and that this uh, connects to the well-known association between genius and madness. Highly creative people have higher access to more of what the world presents, and high intelligence helps one successfully navigate through this flood of perceptions and so forth. So what you're in a sense saying is that that when we are wounded, uh, that often our ways of narrowing our perception of the world breaks down, mm-hmm. and then we are flooded with stimuli, and if we have uh, the capacity to do so, we can sort through this and find the signal in the noise. Am I characterizing this
2: Yeah, I, I put it in terms of uh, high intelligence where intelligence here is referring to your ability to process an enormous amount of information without feeling overwhelmed by all that information. So if for, for any reason you suddenly become open to a much wider range of reality than you normally would be and you're able to hold on to uh, to some sense of stability in the face of all this information, you basically can become an extremely good psychic. But if you can't, you can't hold on to it. Either you don't have a, an, enough raw intelligence, meaning information processing capability, or you're too unstable in some other way. That's what pushes people into psychosis. So, one of the, I, the reason I mention this is because oftentimes people will say that you know they'll get excited about the reality of psychic phenomena and want to know how do they become much better at it. And I always caution people up front that are they absolutely sure they want to do this? Do you really want to become open? To much more of what the world has to to give, uh, because if if you you think it might be all wonder and light, that's not true. You're also opening yourself up to an enormous amount of other people's pain and suffering, and not only your own stuff, but you know, and, and not only now, but in the past and in the future as well. So it could easily become extremely overwhelming. And I deal m- many more with many more people who. for for one reason or another, have opened psychically and why they desperately want it to stop, because it is overwhelming. So I I try to caution people that if they get involved in in anything, whether it's psychic training or even meditation, that they spend an equal amount of time learning how to become grounded and to turn these impressions off so that they can remain grounded.
1: That's very helpful, Dane. Going back to the science for a moment, in your chapter called Origins in your book on Entangled Minds, which is Mm -hmm. about the origins of this field, which is a wonderful long chapter that we can't do justice to here, but you describe how in 1965 the journal Science uh, published an article entitled Extrasensory Electroencephalographic Induction Between Identical Twins, and you say the notion of entangled minds was born. Mm-hmm. Could you decipher that for us? What are you describing there?
2: Well, Entangled Minds suggests that uh, at some deep level of physical reality uh, that there are no objects anymore. There's, there's no, The concept of, of things being separate uh, doesn't exist at a deep physical level. Uh, all that remains are relationships between things. And even the word thing is not right. Our, our language begins to break down when we're trying to use a common sense language in a realm that's completely holistic. But nevertheless, we're sort of stuck with our language, so we have to start thinking in terms of metaphors. Um, so the entangled minds uh, the, the word mind is often thought of as the thing which is uh, associated with your brain and is inside your head in some way. The entangled part is referring to Uh, the physical reality, at least within the quantum world, that everything is actually interrelated to everything else, in which case there's some aspect of each of our minds that is related to all other minds, Uh, giving, among other things, suggesting the idea of a collective unconscious and even a collective conscious at some level that that we, we may or may not be aware of. Um, and, of course, it's not simply minds that are interconnected, but uh, everything, all energy, all matter, all everything we know of is interconnected in some way. So if that is true, what I just said, then it should be possible to demonstrate that in the laboratory by taking two people, who at one level certainly seem to be different people, but at another level we're making a hypothesis that they're really not two different people. They're the same person, the same entity. But nevertheless, we separate them and put one in one room and one in another room. And we use an experimental design, which, in effect, we, we poke one of the pair of people and we see if the other one flinches. And, of course, the people are separated, so there's no ordinary form of, of information transfer between them. They can't see each other or hear each other or anything. And so if you can poke one and the other one flinches, it suggests that just as if you poke one person and they flinch, well, we're not surprised at that but we should be surprised if you poke one and the other one flinches. Well, the experiment reported in science was this basic idea, except rather than poking them physically, they used uh, a a stimulus where they asked one of a pair of identical twins to simply close his or her eyes, which would cause a change in that person's brain waves. They would start producing uh, large alpha waves. And then they looked at the twin, at the other twin, to see whether their brain also changed Did they go into large alpha when the first twin closed their eyes? And the answer was yes. So that was the beginning of experiments looking at at what I call uh, EEG correlations between isolated people. And from then till now, there's about a dozen experiments performed by different groups around the world, and most of those experiments show very similar results. They show that uh, you can produce a stimulus in one person and see the other one respond.
1: It might be useful now for our listeners to uh, say that, at least as I understand, that in your analysis of parapsychology, you're you're dealing, I think, with four categories, uh, telepathy, clairvoyance, psychokinesis, and precognition. Mm -hmm. Is that, in fact, the list?
2: Well, those are labels that are given to the principal ways that these phenomena manifest. Right. Right.
1: So telepathy means that... uh, How would you describe or define telepathy?
2: Telepathy appears to be an exchange of information between minds that uh, excludes the use of the ordinary senses.
1: And clairvoyance?
2: Clairvoyance is an exchange of information with the environment, where information about the environment is perceived without the use of the ordinary senses, and where the information may be obtained both at a distance, in space, or in time. And psychokinesis? Psychokinesis is a direct form of mind-to-matter interaction. And precognition? Precognition is clairvoyance that is specifically slipped in time, typically information from the future, but it might also involve information from the past.
1: Your chapter called Conscious Psy, uh, you uh, undertake to uh, take this analysis further in, in the area of Conscious Psy Phenomena, and then the following chapter is called Unconscious psi. Could you mm-hmm. describe the difference between those two?
2: Well, we know about psychic phenomena because people tell us things. They tell us things about their experience. So by definition, those are conscious events, something that you become aware of and you can tell somebody else. That's why we know about these phenomena in the first place. And for, for many, many years, probably the first, at least the first 60 years of systematic research in this realm, it was all based on conscious reports of psychic experience in laboratory contexts. And there is a, I mean, as, as the meta-analyses show, that when you look at, at the large sequence of experiments that have been done, it's very clear that people are able to be consciously getting information in psychic ways. But starting about 40 years ago, uh, people began to ask the question, well, since we now know, and actually the reason why the question was asked only recently is because it wasn't until relatively recently that people began to get the notion of unconscious information processing. But the idea that the unconscious is as much of a thinking system as the conscious system is. In which case, if we're getting uh, conscious psychic experiences, then there probably are many more psychic experiences that are going on in the unconscious. And So the ways to look at this included things like uh, uh, waking up from dreams, which dreams are not always conscious. In fact, rarely are they conscious until you wake up and you remember it. So use of dreams as a a medium to get psychic information or, more more likely now, uh, physiological means of looking at brainwave patterns, looking at things like skin conductance and um, um, respiration patterns and those sorts of things. And the, the switch or the, the shifting from primarily looking at conscious experience to unconscious experience has taken what, what might be thought of as a signal and amplifying it by at least a factor of 10, more, maybe more than 10 in some cases. They get much stronger evidence for psychic ability in the unconscious. And also more robust in the sense that the effects that we see are not just bigger, but they they seem to persist across people in a a way which makes the ability to detect these effects much, much more efficient.
1: So taking that point about unconscious side, that is to say that uh, physiological responses that are not conscious may be much more efficient ways of testing psi experience than conscious reports. I'd like to ask you to go to page 172 in your book in a segment entitled Presentiment in the Heart, which is the equivalent of precognition in the heart, Mm -hmm. and briefly describe the study that Roland McCready and his colleagues reported, and then read, please, the direct quote from uh, the study at the end of Mm
2: -hmm. that section. What you're referring to is um, a series of studies uh, that I started in 1996 that I wanted to make a distinction between precognition, which suggests that you're cognizing information, meaning conscious of, uh, to an unconscious form of reacting to the future. So I called it presentiment. Presentiment is an unconscious form of precognition.
1: I was actually wrong then. I thought they were synonyms, but presentiment
2: then is the unconscious form of precognition. I right. So presentiment meaning pre feeling. Yes, I got it. And yeah, making the distinction between cognition and feeling. So presentiment, as I said, the unconscious forms of psychic perception are much stronger, and and in many ways are easier to demonstrate too. So this is an experiment where someone sits down in front of a computer screen and presses a button and a few seconds later they see an emotional picture where they see a calm picture. And these are randomized, so they don't know in advance what they're about to see. And in fact, even the experimenter doesn't know what they're about to see. And meanwhile, you take a continual physiological measure. In this case, they were taking heart rate as the measure. And if it's true that you respond to your upcoming future in the present, then just before you see an emotional picture, your heart rate may begin to change and it may begin to change in the direction that is consistent with what actually happens when you see the picture. So if you see an emotional picture, your heart rate will suddenly drop, and it's it's a well-known um, uh, reaction to the fight-or-flight response. Uh, if you see a calm picture, your heart rate doesn't change much because it doesn't need to. You just see a picture and it doesn't have any, any meaning to you. It's not threatening. So the presentiment experiment has a simple hypothesis, which is that the physiology monitored before a stimulus appears will be similar to the same response after you see the stimulus. So, what Roland did was, first of all, replicate my experimental design and focused on heart rate since uh, Roland is at the Institute of Heart Math, uh, which focuses mainly on the heart. So, he did an experiment, he got significant results, and he summarized his, his findings by saying, of greatest significance here is our major finding, namely, evidence that the heart is directly involved in the processing of information about a future emotional stimulus seconds before the body actually experiences the stimulus. What is truly surprising about this result is the fact that the heart appears to play a direct role in the perception of future events. At the very least, it implies that the brain does not act alone in this regard.
1: I was very struck by that passage, uh, this major finding that the heart is directly involved in the processing of information about a future emotional stimulus Mm -hmm. seconds before the body actually experiences the stimulus. And again, as you read, what is truly surprising is the fact that the heart appears to play a direct role in the perception of future events. Mm -hmm. That's really, and this is why I've been so drawn to your work for so long, it's a, a... a stunning and surprising uh, uh, account given our assumption that the future, uh, as we understand it, is unknowable.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: here we are finding that that the heart uh, is one of the uh, organs or systems in the body that actually is able to respond to an uh, event uh, moments the event actually takes place.
2: Mm-hmm. And this the reason why it's only a couple of seconds before is purely due to the experimental design. We, You know, when we do an experiment in the lab, you don't want someone sitting there for hours. You may have one hour with them total, and you have to do repeated trials. So the designs typically are such that you do one trial that may last a total of 10 or 15 seconds. that That's going to limit how far in the future you're looking but the implication here is that if you can respond to information 2 or 3 seconds in the future you're you're very likely to be able to respond to information which is basically years in the future now we don't know the structure of future events very well i mean my own guess is that the future is probabilistic and it's not it's it's not absolute but it doesn't matter whether it's probabilistic or absolute we we don't really know what what the future uh, what the future is like uh, we do know that not only the, the, the brain, but the heart and probably the gut, and in many ways even the whole body systemically, uh, responds to things that are about to, uh, to happen to you.
1: In your chapter called Gaia's Dreams, you begin by uh, quoting Pierre Taillard de Chardin, the mm-hmm. Jesuit priest, paleontologist, biologist, and philosopher who wrote Peoples and Civilizations reached such a degree either of frontier contact or economic interdependence or psychic communion that they could no longer develop save by interpenetration of one another. Under the combined influence of machinery and the superheating of thought, we are witnessing a formidable upsurge of unused powers. Mm -hmm. So in this chapter, you begin to take this uh, robust uh, research on psi phenomena and look at the broader question of the future of the Earth, in effect. Could you describe uh, your uh, conclusions in, uh, in that part of your thinking?
2: Well, this line of research comes out from many, many years of laboratory experiments, almost always involving one or two people. When we do experiments with one person, we're doing something like a clairvoyance experiment or precognition Two people were looking looking typically at telepathy. the The evidence is is so strong and consistent that, that the phenomena are real in the case of one or two people that it immediately begs the question of, well, what about a hundred people? What about a thousand people? The, these forms of uh, non-local connections between people don't stop just between pairs. They would go everywhere. And it raises the possibility that what uh, Carl Jung talked about as the collective unconscious, is a real thing, not not simply a symbolic way of thinking about uh, humanity, but an actual large mind. We can call it the mind of Gaia. And so in, in uh, proper experimental form, we can say, well, let's assume that that exists, uh, that, that Gaia's mind exists in some way, and how would we go about to detect if that were true? Well, the way that we've used so far, there, there are two basic ways. So we've used one, the other one is used by the... Um, the people from the uh, transcendental meditation direction based on something that the Maharishi called uh, the, the Maharishi effect, which was uh, if you have a lot of people meditating in a certain area that and they're meditating on peaceful thoughts, that uh, indices of crime in the local area will decrease. And this, this would demonstrate that there's some kind of a field effect associated with mind's. Well, that's an interesting result, but it actually turns out to be uh, very difficult to do these experiments well because you're dealing with things like crime statistics, which are horribly complicated to understand in terms of what what modulates crime. So we decided to take a a simpler approach, which is based on the use of a random number generator as a way of detecting uh, when unexpected negentropic events occur. So what do I mean by that? I mean that uh, a, a true random number generator is a device that is designed to create as pure or random sequence as possible. It creates the, the least amount of patterning of information as possible. And through the use of fairly simple statistics, you can tell when momentary periods of order appear, patterns will appear in the random stream. They're, they're fairly easy to detect because as I said, the devices are designed in such a way that they're, d- they're designed to produce only noise, only randomness. So the, hy- the hypothesis in this grand experiment was that if you take one of these random number generators and you put it in the vicinity of a group that is doing something which is highly coherent mentally, like a, uh, a meditation group or a group that's doing drumming or uh, perhaps a, uh, an orchestra playing or a choral group singing, that in these cases, it's, it's not simply one mind anymore. There's a whole bunch of minds that are working together to achieve a common task in, of some type, and they, they can gel. And When people are involved in some group that is doing something and it gels, almost everyone will feel a shift, you feel a, an, an internal shift. Something happened, and, and our individuality was lost and turned up more in terms of a group effort. Most groups try to achieve this, I mean, it's like the ideal in a sports team to lose individual players and to become a a literal team, a single team. So if you put a random number generator in the vicinity of these groups, you find more often than not, and this has been replicated by many groups around the world now, that you find that the randomness begins to go away and is replaced by a form of statistical order while the group is mentally being coherent. And when the group is no longer mentally coherent the random device goes back to being random. And the, the order goes away. So Roger Nelson and I and a few colleagues did about 100 experiments involving groups doing something, and we would monitor the random number generator.
1: Was this called the Global Consciousness Project, or was that another?
2: No, th- this was before the Global Consciousness okay. Project. These these were simply called field reg, field okay. R-E-G, okay. or field consciousness experiments. So then uh, a number of us got together together, at a conference one time, and um, we were discussing these experiments and how, th- how amazing they seemed. And we all decided that what was, what was really needed was a continual experiment, an experiment in which random numbers were being produced all the time so that we could take advantage of unexpected events. Um, I'll, I'll just backtrack just a second here to an event that was uh, probably unique in history and still somewhat unique in modern history, and it was the reading of the O.J. Simpson verdict. I've talked about this in uh, The Conscious Universe. This is unique because uh, probably close to a billion people uh, for months before the reading of the verdict, we became, they became overwhelmed with uh, following the, uh, the trial, and everyone knew about a week in advance that on a certain day and a certain time, that there would be a live reading of the verdict. And this was a verdict that that split uh, society strongly into two different directions. So there was a lot of energy being focused on this one event. And so I, since I knew this in advance, I decided to run five different random number generators just to see whether this large-scale world event would cause a, a reaction in the randomness. So I ran three of them, and I had uh, two colleagues run, each one in uh, on the East Coast and one in Europe. And then later we combined all the data, and sure enough, we, we together by combining the data from the three generators saw a very strong indication that uh, at the moment of the reading of the verdict, there was a very non-random pattern that was created in what should have been a random sequence.
1: And in, uh, in Entangled Minds, you give other examples of... Uh, uh, the funeral of uh, Pope John Paul mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the death of uh, Princess Diana, I believe,
3: mm-hmm.
1: Right, are two other examples. So th- there, just to be clear, the effect on random number generators, is that considered a
2: psychokinesis effect? At some point, the distinction between psychokinesis and telepathy and clairvoyance, it all begins to flow apart or flow together. Uh, what we're talking about here is ways in which inter- the interconnected nature of the world manifests. So if you think about it, telepathy is a form of mind-matter interaction. It's one person's mind interacting probably with another person's brain. This is not to say that mind and brain are identical, but they're pretty closely correlated. So if I'm thinking thoughts about you, your brain is probably changing in, uh, in correlation with your mind. So it's kind of a mind-matter interaction. If I'm asked to get a clairvoyant information from somewhere out in the world, well, that's my mind and it's matter of the world. So that's a kind of a mind-matter interaction as well.
1: In the last chapters of this book, A New Reality and Series of Psi, you you wrestle with what all this means. And on page 240, you say, Uh, psi phenomena present three key problems for theory development. The first is that information has to reach across space and time in ways that defy common sense. As Einstein said, this is a problem for physics. The second is that this information must arrive in your mind without the use of the ordinary senses, and it must be able to interact with objects at a distance. This is a problem for both physics and the neurosciences. And the third is that information must reach conscious awareness often enough for people to report it. This is a problem for psychology and the neurosciences. And you go on in these chapters to think about whether uh, quantum physics provides the best explanatory framework for uh, these otherwise seemingly unexplicable phenomena. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Could you speak briefly about this?
2: Briefly. Well, probably not.
3: <laughs>
2: okay. Uh, you're, you're right. Give it a that shot. You no, know, I, I, can, I can give it a shot. But basically, the, the uh, idea here of struggling for an explanation is, is quite literally true. We, we, we don't have a good explanation at this point. So instead, what I try to do here is to, to in these chapters, is to paint a picture of how our ideas about physicality have changed over time. When you go way, way back, back into the age where everything was alive, animism and vitalism, uh, physics wasn't well-developed, in which case, uh, if everything is alive, then psychic phenomena are not so surprising because if you needed to get information from a distance, well, distance wasn't quite understood very well. And so you can just simply talk to nature, and nature would would tell you the answer. So psychic phenomena were expected and, and probably happened a lot. But... As science began to develop and found that there was great power in explaining things in mechanistic terms, suddenly things having to do with uh, the mind's ability to grasp information also collapsed. It became, in a sense, coagulated in the same form as a mechanistic function. And it's worse than mechanism. It's mechanism combined with explanations that could only make sense in causal terms. And I'm going to kind of skip over all of the, the implications and history of this, but basically the reason why in psychology behaviorism became popular in the in 1950s, plus or minus a few years, was because of thinking of the mind as identical to the brain, as identical to a, a clockwork mechanism. From that model of reality, of physical reality, there, things like getting information from a distance independent of space and time was quite literally impossible. In which case, somebody reporting a psychic experience or someone reporting an experiment in the lab which contravened that idea had to be mistaken because there was no other alternative. But as you then trace the history of the physical sciences, you find that, especially with the, uh, well, partially with relativity theory, but also with quantum mechanics, that our notion of space and time radically changed, our notion of causality radically changed, or even our notion of what what it means to say that things are separate, radically changed. And when you follow the trajectory of modern physics, it has gone very strongly away from the notion of the the universe as a giant clock and more in the direction of something else, something organic, something like a thought. And following that trajectory further into the future, what, what it seems to me is that it's pointing to a kind of understanding of physical reality which is completely compatible with the notion that there's some aspect of us which is not localized, that we, we appear to be separate based on common sense, but that is not all there is in terms of the fabric of physical reality. And so if it turns out that, that this trajectory is correct and that the, the fabric of reality also has non-local components, then I think it would be extremely surprising that people did not report feeling connected at a distance, because they should. That's what, that's what our understanding of physics tells us today.
1: So our entangled minds, you were suggesting, are simply a part of being participants in a conscious universe.
2: Well, it's, it's more fundamental than that. The reason that there should be entangled minds is because that's what physics tells us that the stuff of reality is made out of. That's why there should be these effects. And it, it reframes the notion of psychic abilities from some magical power that transcends the physical universe into something that sh- that is an expected reflection of the interconnectedness of the universe itself.
1: Dean, I believe you once told me in conversation that in the ongoing experiments you're doing at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, you had experimented in these uh, studies where... You have people in two rooms, and one in, one is trying to influence in some way or other the, the consciousness of the person in the other room, and they're completely separated. Mm-hmm. I think you told me that when you worked uh, with uh, couples where, if I remember correctly, one of the two had cancer, am I right about that? Yes. That you saw more powerful effects than in people who were not deeply connected in
2: some way. Is that Mm -hmm. a
1: correct memory?
2: Yes. Yeah, that study was addressing the issue of motivation to connect, motivation to feel uh, interconnected with a partner. So when in a couple, one of whom is healthy and the other is very ill, the healthy person wants to assist the person who's ill in some way. And so we... Uh, did a training program for the healthy person and compassionate intention to help them learn a way, a method of cultivating compassion and then offering it to their partner, even if their partner is at a distance. So the reason we did the lab test was to see whether this training program would actually cause a measurable difference in our ability to detect that two people are connected at a distance. And the short answer is it did. We got a much, much stronger effect eight times the effect that we see with people who don't have that level of motivation.
1: I wonder whether you said that the intention there was to to help the other person.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: The medium seems to have been a deep sense of compassionate connection or love with the other person. Yes. So it raises the question whether love is a uh, medium that facilitates uh, transmissions uh, between minds and between beings.
2: That's one way of thinking of it. Another way is that uh, love is a very powerful focusing force. It, it helps us. And I think, if I had to guess why these connections appear, they're, they're not created. It's not, so, it's not as though something is magically appears that wasn't there before. The connections are always there. It's, everything is already connected. So it changes the, the mystery from trying to figure out how connections are made into how do we become aware of those connections. So I think love for another, another person or another thing even is a way of very tightly focusing your attention on the one thing out of the entire universe that you wish to pay attention to. And when you do that, you will discover what is already there. You'll discover the link that's already there. That's why I think that that love acts in that way.
1: Talking yesterday with Rachel Naomi Remen about this upcoming conversation, she mentioned that it's uh, something that had been on my mind, which is that in many of the spiritual traditions. Uh, These uh, psi capacities are reported as developing in the course of spiritual practice, Mm -hmm. but there are many admonitions not to pay too much attention to them or ignore them. So you mentioned that your early exposure to Patanjali's Yoga Sutras as a child, uh, and uh, in the Yoga Sutras, if I remember correctly, these are reported, but um, they are not reported as something that one should focus on. Right. Uh, and so I wonder uh, what, what has justified for you a focus on these capacities since so many of the spiritual traditions warn against uh, too much emphasis on?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it all depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to become spiritually enlightened, it makes a lot of sense to not dwell on psychic abilities because y- you, can, you can be entranced by them and and stop stop you from reaching your goal. But if the goal is to understand the nature of human experience in its fullest sense, then this is not getting stuck at psychic phenomena, but rather it's working with part of the realm of human experience that science is capable of studying now. If science were capable of studying uh, direct, full-blown mystical experiences and understanding what those things are, then I would be working on that but we're not there yet. We don't know how to get to get much further than uh, simple experiences of telepathy and precognition and so on. From a scientific point of view, uh, well, let's take first from a spiritual training point of view. From a spiritual training point of view, psychic phenomena are among the first things that are encountered. So they're considered elementary, so elementary that don't focus on it because you'll lose track of your training. But from a scientific point of view, Psychic phenomena are so far out on, on the range of the believable that to go any further than psychic phenomena as, as a, uh, a realm of scientific inquiry is inconceivable. So as a scientist, when I put my scientist hat on, I recognize that psychic phenomena present a significant anomaly to prevailing scientific ideas, and it's something I can study. We can do experiments on it when I take off my science hat and I put on my person hat, uh, I'm, I'm much less interested in simply developing psychic abilities and a more interested in a full-blown form of spiritual development. Uh, that, and so that's, that's simply different, different ways of approaching the world and depends on what your goal is.
1: Well, I uh, want to <laughs> close both by simply thanking you and by saying that you and your colleagues at the Institute of Noetic Sciences are making a simply tremendous contribution uh, to uh, what your founder, Willis Harmon, described as one of the most fundamental shifts in history, a change in the actual belief structure of Western society. And I think IONS, uh, Marilyn Schlitz, uh, all of your colleagues there are making a very great contribution. And, Dean, uh, your work is tremendously important, and it's been a great privilege to talk with you. Thank
3: you very much.
0: You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. This program was pre-recorded with a live telephone audience. If you would like to join future conversations, please email us at thenewschoolatcommonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. And please visit our website, where you'll find full-length recordings of all new school conversations, as well as information on upcoming events. Our website address is www.commonweal.org new school. Thank you for joining us.